What is it that I plan to do with my one wild and precious life? For me, that's still a very active question, placing a lot of emphasis on the future tense. According to generally accepted statistics, I've only lived about a third of that life, and less than a sixth of that part of it that's truly under my control. With a reasonable amount of luck, I still have quite a few decades of wild and precious life left, and the possibilities often seem daunting. The question has, of course, occurred to me before, and the answers have changed pretty drastically over time. When I was 12, I got a book for my birthday. Its subtitle was Colonizing the Galaxy in Eight Easy Steps. <laughs> Easy and steps, of course, are both terms whose definition depends a lot on the context. The last step, which covered humanity's expansion from the solar system to the rest of the galaxy, was slated to take about 500 years. As an immortal preteen, I therefore decided it would be reasonable for me to oversee the entire process, <laughs> personally. I think by the time I started college, I'd narrowed my focus slightly. But in retrospect, it's hard to say a lot of the long-term plans I've come up with over the years have been much more realistic. I never did get that doctorate, for example. It turns out applying to graduate school is a very important first step. <laughs> and it's looking increasingly unlikely that the brilliant, world-changing invention I was scheduled to come up with will make me a billionaire by 30. Indeed, for a large part of my life, it's hard to say there was a big distinction for me between plans and daydreams. Even today, I find that I worry a lot about doing big and important things with my life. I have a strong urge to do something or make something that will make a mark on the world, something that proves to me beyond a doubt that the world is better off for having me in it than it would have been otherwise. Logically, I know that most people change the world in small ways, known only to those immediately around them. But I've had a hard time freeing myself from the desire to make my name reverberate through history. Maybe my mother is partly responsible. When I was in school, she would press me to study hard because I needed to grow up to cure cancer someday. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. Lately, though, I've been trying to think less about how to be the next Einstein or Bill Gates and more about how I can be a better me, how to make my home more peaceful and satisfying, how to improve the relationships in my life, and how I can one day be a good husband and hopefully father. It's a fairly recent conversion and I still need some practice. As recently as the end of last year, I was struggling with the thought that my career wasn't going where I wanted it to. Sure, I'm lucky enough to have a job that offers me a reasonable degree of financial security. The working conditions are unbelievably good by 1910 standards. <laughs> and at least in theory, there's enough real work to keep my brain from atrophying before the evening commute. But I felt like I needed more. I needed an opportunity for greatness, and I didn't know where to find it. I looked for other work, 
I asked all my friends about ideas for startups. I considered going back to school. I wondered if I'd made the wrong decision by settling in this area rather than, say, Silicon Valley. I don't really know when those questions stopped being so consuming for me. When I started thinking about the question Amanda posed to us for my contribution to this platform, I began to realize that I no longer considered achieving greatness through my work to be such an important piece of my personal satisfaction. I'm also trying to work on being idle and blessed. Now, I'm very good at being idle, especially when I have a deadline coming up. But that's a passive kind of idleness. I don't feel blessed when I'm procrastinating. I feel guilty and stingy of the time that I'm wasting so thoroughly. It takes a different kind of attitude to be actively idle, to do something that advances no other goal but enjoyment, without needing to consume any entertainment or learn anything new, just to be a part of the world. And though I'm still troubled by worries that I'm not doing enough to make the world a better place, I'm often reminded of the other important things in life. I'll come to Wes, say, and hear a platform address urging me to pay attention to the world around me and stay for a class where I'm learning how to build better relationships. Or perhaps I'll come home in the evening to my wonderful fiancé and we'll spend the evening together drinking wine and reading poetry. In those moments, I realize how important it is to truly appreciate the world while I'm in it. When I do that, I can remember the other plans I've made the ones that seem too small to think about when I'm busily daydreaming about making a big splash in the world. I'll invite some friends over for dinner. I'll learn to play the piano. I'll build connections with my community. I'll start a family and raise children with the person I've chosen to share my life with. And when I'm really thinking about those plans and being in the moment, they suddenly don't seem so small and unimportant after all. My parents were immigrants who came to this country fleeing oppression, poverty, and the circumscribed life led by European Jews in the early 20th century. My father's memory of the life in Austria was dim as he had left as a youngster. My mother, however, didn't arrive here until she was 14 and she had vivid recollections of Tsarist Russia. Although like all the immigrants who came to America, my parents sought economic opportunity, I think that an eagerness to be free to learn all they desired most motivated them to make that long, difficult journey, leaving behind many beloved family members whom they would never see again. They transmitted this passion for knowledge to me and to my brother. Encouraged by them both, I began to spend many hours reading and writing stories and fancied myself a young disciple of Louisa May Alcott, scribbling ideas on scraps of paper as they surfaced. I gobbled up everything Alcott had written as it turned out much more than little women and little men. And the greatest gift I ever received as a child was a carton filled with books by her, brought to me by my brother after a trip he took to New Orleans. But the big epiphany came when I began to study French. For whatever reason, even the grammar of this language new to me excited me. 
Mademoiselle Sabre, the initial French teacher, was charming in her idiosyncrasies, impressive in her knowledge of her native language, and filled with stories that made the class alternately reflective and amused. This would be my vocation too, I thought. I would learn and teach and write about this beautiful culture. It wasn't long, however, before challenges surfaced. I shared my new choice of vocation with a comrade. A teacher, she asked. That's great, except that you're so shy, you cannot talk in class without mumbling and turning red. A daunting evaluation, but she was right. Then I remembered that I came from a family of brave immigrants. I could overcome my shyness. <clears throat> I started small. Needing a first student, I turned to my much-loved young cousin, a frequent visitor to my home, and had her listen to my practice lectures. Poor kid, force-fed French at such a tender age. <laughs> <clears throat> Now a professional singer and the mother of two grown young men, she insisted when I reminded her of this era that it was fun to hang out with her big cousin, even though she didn't understand much of the French. I have to say then that my first efforts as a French teacher had mixed results at best. Struggling with my shyness would be a lifelong issue, although many years later when I found Wes, these efforts were greatly supported. I was so impressed by how openly people spoke, and very often about challenging topics, that I saw the value of continuing my work to be able to do the same, enter many courses in relationship building. I began my actual teaching first as a predicted red-faced mumbling teacher, and slowly as a more confident leader in the classroom. I loved the academic life, all of it, the opportunity to continue to learn, the endless philosophical dialogues in the hallways with colleagues about current and not so current issues, the chance to shape young lives for the better, and the ongoing exploration of this culture I loved with others who shared my passion. I wanted more. I decided excitedly to go back to graduate school for more training, and one of life's surprises surfaced. Instead of the nurturing environment that I had previously known in all my studies, I found a tension-filled, sad place, filled with jealousies and resentments. It was a major shock and disappointment. How could people who were spending their lives studying and teaching the humanities be so profoundly unloving and inhuman? I got through one of two degrees I had planned to take there, and then I reconsidered what to do. I feared that malice could be catching, and in fact, I watched myself and, former, uh, and fellow students become embittered by the constant frustration we experienced. What did I have that was more valuable than my spirit and my dreams? I finally fled. But I had been wounded and felt lost. Look what this profession I had idolized had produced. Was it my destiny to become that kind of professor? I was frightened. I thought I'd do something different for a year and revisit my plans after that. Now another urgent question arose. Exactly what other kind of work 
is an unemployed French teacher capable of doing for a year? I saw an ad in a newspaper for a house mother and advisor to young student nurses in a hospital in Baltimore. I had no qualifications whatsoever for the job, but the hospital was desperate. <laughs> Their last employee had become overwhelmed by the active switchboard. She had simply taken an unscheduled break, completely shutting down the hospital switchboard. The hospital administration was not amused. She didn't last the day, and I became her replacement, having assured them that I would not duplicate her actions and paralyze the hospital. It was a wonderful interim year. The girls were lovely. They were totally unspoiled, brave, and dedicated to caring for others, although in many cases their own lives had been quite difficult. They shared with me their joy when a patient thrived and sorrow at the inevitable losses. They were my teachers as much as I was theirs, and I began to see that qualities of the heart were often a different set of gifts from qualities of the mind, but that didn't mean that with some hard work, one couldn't acquire both. As the year drew to a close, it was the girls who urged me to go back to teaching now that they were graduating. It's your profession, Rachel. You should do it. Half-heartedly, I began to read the journals again. I stumbled on an ad for a French teacher at Gallaudet College. That was the deaf school. Could deaf students learn a foreign language? I was hooked. Intrigued enough to call the name in the journal, I was soon deep in conversation with the chair of the department about the work of the college. Deaf students did indeed learn foreign languages and just about everything else. They learned all these subjects through American Sign Language, which was taught to every new teacher who didn't already know it. I couldn't imagine myself doing this work, but it was worth a, a day to see such a unique place. I scheduled an interview. I arrived there and fell in love. It was a relatively small college then with a lovely campus, beautiful trees, lawns, and flowers in the heart of the city. Students and professors waved to one another across the campus. The people in the department were helpful, and I had a fascinating interview with the dean that I still remember. I sat in on a class and found the communication and interactions quite remarkable. If I get this job by some miracle, I thought, I'll take it. I won't last more than a year, but think of all I can learn in a year. I got it and took it to the delight of my student nurses, and I now have been at it for 35 years. We're no longer a very small place. The people in my department, a new group now, of course, are still wonderful, and except for some rather distressing events that have made the newspapers, Gallaudet remains fundamentally a humane place. And when it doesn't seem so to me, I speak up. I am no longer so silent or shy. Wes has worked its magic on me. <laughs> I do what I can, and when I or colleagues fail as human beings, I initiate a dialogue about it. Sometimes it even works. My work life isn't perfect, but it has been good enough, bringing me much joy and satisfaction. Wes has been a great source of support through the years. It has provided me with loving and wise friends and the inspiration and strength to deal with students 
whose behavior often reflects the challenges of early separation from families, daily frustration, and often unacceptable treatment from others. I have tried to be led by the hope expressed by Adler in an address given in January 1901, I quote, may the humanity that is within every human being be held more and more precious and be regarded with ever deepening reverence, end of quote. Although I have not always felt triumphant, I have felt useful, offering what I love to a special population. My students have been in the Peace Corps, have traveled, studied, and worked abroad in many countries, or use their languages at home, in businesses and schools. Beyond that, I think and hope that all their professors at Gallaudet, particularly the hearing professors, help them to see that they are not a forgotten subculture in American society, that they are valued and valuable human beings, and that, after all, is the message of Felix Adler and ethical culture. My faith in human goodness is renewed every time I experience our ability to connect in relationship. But often, we miss opportunities that arise all the time. For me, I find this renewal rests in the ability to affect and be affected. To affect another and be affected in return is at the crux of our culture. I notice that so much of the time we're so involved in our own world or so focused or so into what we do that we often just don't see. We often miss what I call the essential moment of awareness or acknowledgement of what it actually means to be human. We oftentimes don't recognize what really enhances our very selves. So why lose our humanity rather than cultivate it? Why lose our sense of humanness? It's simple and it's also very complex. I think we often just lack skills. We have to learn how to become better, more human, more ourselves. We have to learn how to see. Sometimes we do not know how to not be in our own world, so therefore so much of the world passes us by. Or we might think that having skills to enhance our humanity is irrelevant or unimportant, or that it's something we're really not responsible for, or one of my favorites. It's someone else's stuff. It's not my problem. And yet I see that no matter what circumstance we're in, no matter what rationale we use, we still long to have or find our place in this world made up of others. Sogyal Rinpoche, a Buddhist monk, speaks of this. He says, when we leave that negating behavior behind us, when we change out of that place of judgment, a shift happens. Something different comes over us. Sogyal calls this change a generosity of spirit. I too see this. When we're able to transcend problems, the hardships in life, the cruelty, the letdowns, the irritations that may occur on a daily basis, I see us able to act in an open way. I see this openness when we dance. We affect and are affected. I see it in theater when we rehearse. When we perform, we affect and are affected. 
I experience it with many of you when we're just in conversation. We too share a generosity of spirit as the core of our relationships. So what are skills to cultivate this? The practice of being as present as we can be in the moment. The practice of being loving to those we are with in every present moment. Think about it. How simply daring to recognize the humanness in another. How daring to look another in the eye. How simply daring to practice this all the time in every human relationship. For me, it opens the way to no aggression, no expectations, just simply to see one another. Because without each other, after all, what are we? This answers Mary Oliver's question for me, and it is also what Dr. Joseph Truman, leader of Ethical at Bergen and co-leader in New York, calls our common human intuition. He says ethics comes out of human experience. He calls this our common impulse to be and to strive to be a moral people, a better people. This experience is what unites us. It is our bond. It brings us together when the other becomes ourself. Why then fall back into habits that get us nowhere when we can reconnect to the natural skill we have, being ourselves, being comfortable with ourselves, doing no harm first to ourselves, and therefore not harming another, truly eliciting the best in ourselves first. I know a little about this as I practice it as a parent, as a teacher. We practice it in the theater, in dance, but especially in a form of dance called contact improvisation. CI, as it's known in the dance community, works from this notion that we all have the capacity to affect and be affected. It's one of CI's fundamental principles, and it's very closely aligned to what we practice here at the Washington Ethical Society. This form of dance is a wonderful way to be fully present in each moment and to find equanimity. When you're in contact improvisation, lines between leader, follower, dissolve. They do not even exist. All is in a moment of mutuality. There's risk, there's fulfillment. There's support, the sharing of weight, the physical sharing of weight. There's understanding. We share a sense of playfulness and adventure. We are joined in mindfulness. In theater, the performing arts, I find unfettered intelligence. In CI, we experience simple, direct connection. I truly believe that to be our best selves, we must first understand what it is like to be the other. This for me is the premise of existentialism. It is the foundation of being our better selves as all religions teach. Our work as ethical culturists is to affect others and allow others to affect us. I believe that when I affect and am affected, I live the principle of the one and the many that Adler understood because it is from within interdependency or the one and the many that a social morality awakens. This is how an ethos of our modern age can materialize as an age of ethical manifestation or what I like to call evidence of ethical universals in the secular world, in the religious world. This makes our movement grow, that we cultivate the best of ourselves first, then with each other, and not just each other here in this room, 
but the other in our everyday lives, in our every here and now situation. When genuine, this capacity allows for judgments to dissolve. What I call an attachment to egoness disappears, and instead, a sense of unity takes the place and replaces that old identity. And in fact, we rise together a better people. This is my take on what we do through ethical culture. This is how we are called to live our one wild and precious life. Our life isn't precious to hold or to keep. Its preciousness is in when we give, when we give of ourselves, not selfishly and not for selfish purposes, but indeed for something greater than ourselves. When we genuinely bridge the distance between one another within a framework of ethics, that is when we become our better selves. I quote from Truman's article, Ethical Culture's Distinctive Voice. Enter into the depths of human experience. Go beyond where thought alone can take you. Live life for and with other human beings. Thank you. <laughs>